Greetings, Terces, Terrans, Earthers, and anyone else listening now or in a thousand years somewhere far, far away. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. Richard's indisposed tonight, so filling in tonight for him is um, Ron Gibran. It's referring to oneself in the third person is a little creepy. Let me give you the world's shortest bio. Uh, when I was about eight or nine years old, people started to call me a know-it-all, so I decided I'd better. Uh, it's an ongoing project. Okay, now on to more important things. Uh, tonight, the subject is insight, and our guest is Tim Ventura. I keep hey. expecting there to be more music. Oh, there you are. Hi, yeah, Tim. no, I'm here. I just unmuted myself. Yes, I am Tim Ventura, and I am here with you, Ron. We will get through this together. I think it's awesome that you're filling in for Richard. I hope that he is feeling better soon. And uh, yes, yeah, let me know how I can help you get started. Well, you could help us a little bit by telling us about yourself. Well, let me see my my long uh, origin story, as it were. I guess. Um, well, so let, I, I'll, let me give you your bio. Uh, and then we'll catch you in any mistakes that you make. Uh, Tim Ventura is the founder of American Anti-Gravity and has over 20 years of experience in emerging propulsion technology, along with career experience as a successful digital marketing executive, uh, startup advisor and strategy consultant. Sorry, I broke that sentence up. I've only read it 100 times. His work has been featured on many print, radio, and television venues such as Wired Magazine. I read that one myself. Jane's Defense Weekly, the Discovery Channel, Nippon TV, and many more. Tim joins us tonight to discuss the APEC conference, which he will explain, which has been called the Woodstock of Anti-Gravity, along with his research into the mystery of Navy UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, sightings. Okay, Tim, what did we get wrong? Oh, no, you know what? That sounds pretty good, uh, and I'm happy to elaborate, you know. Um, so, yeah, Coast guests uh, from way back when, many of whom followed Richard to the other side of midnight over the years, um, will probably be familiar with me. I'm the founder of American Into Gravity. I was on Coast a few times, um, and, you know, I, I've spoken on various issues relating to breakthrough propulsion. And so I'm very happy to be here tonight and be able to continue the legacy, I guess, um, on, on Richard's own show now. That's very exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that things are going well. I'm glad he's building an audience. It's, it, I'm pleased as punch to see that everything is kind of moving forward there. So, uh, again, 2002, American Anti-Gravity. Uh, back then, we were playing with something called Lifters. Uh, again, folks may remember those. They were like made out of tinfoil. We put a high voltage on them. They would lift off and fly around. Um, so at the time, that did pretty well with the media. And, uh, you know, after two or three years of radio, TV around the world, I realized my 15 minutes and fame were just about up. So I started doing interviews with other innovators in the field. And I literally just started stacking interviews online, uh, you know, 80 or 90 something interviews that I did there. And we ended up wrapping up the, the American Anti-Gravity Project probably in around 2007, mid-2007. So it was just a little over five-year run with it. Okay, um, I, that's a good starting point. Yeah. I like to do that, jump right in and shut people down. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, let's try Richard's... Um promo. He had something laid out there, and but I found one paragraph in your 
uh, write-up of the conference that uh, I want to talk to you about. Hmm. Ah, okay. And by the, oh, and by the way, uh, for everyone out there, his websites, you want to, I'll let you give out the website address in a second, although it's on the Other Side of Midnight website. If folks just go to the other side of midnight.com, uh, everything in the world that matters about anything we're going to talk about tonight is there. It is the sacred archives, at least at the moment, even on a rough day. So um, anyway, it says anti-gravity, the siren song of space propulsion engineers for decades. And I like that. The... Um, I'm having to do this on my phone, folks. That's the only time I'm going to apologize for something, but it does make it a little clunkier than having it laid out on big screens in front of you. Uh, Tim Ventura, founder and current president of American Aid Gravity and possessed of endless energy himself, as far as I can tell, a nonprofit research group experimenting with a variety of engineering techniques to achieve this holy grail of modern science is the guest tonight. And as he just said, he's in touch with most of the major players and we've probably heard of most of them as well well but we'll get into that i'm more interested in the um things behind the curtain what it says the um above top secret the real military anti-gravity technologies and in other words uh back engineering and getting stuff into the public sector because i think that's going on right now and there's one paragraph here that i just love will it be built around the continued use our new pro propulsion systems, that is, uh, continued use of a demonstrably 3,000-year-old obsolete technology. He's talking about the Chinese. They made um, rockets at least that long ago. If anybody else came up with gunpowder first, uh, we don't really know yet, but they didn't use it for war. They just were shooting up uh, skyrockets. It was like fireworks. They invented fireworks first and then weapons which I think is kind of interesting. But was it rockets like that? The same old stuff, paper wrapped around some dynamite or something? Or is it the newly created Space Force? Is that just the cover for the coming unveiling of the reality of a current real secret space program based on real anti-gravity spaceships? Just from a common sense, you kind of have to say, well, probably yes, because why are you going to keep sticking people on top of rockets and shooting them into the air the, um, when you need something that can lift as much weight as you like and take it wherever you like and go as fast as you like? And that's the very technologies that Tim's group has been studying and working on for some time. And the now if I can find the commerce or the... Hmm, Click. This is what happens. At least it's not noisy. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, this has to be it. Yeah, here they are. This is the APEC one I was looking for. This is something that was released as a sort of a press thing, I guess. It says APEC conference. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, it's the Alternative Propulsion Engineering Conference. <laughs> I love acronyms. That's a good one. Uh, down in here, we have here it is. What are some of the key technologies? Tim, this is for you. It says we've discussed. Speaking of the um, 
press release. We've discussed nearly every approach to emerging propulsion imaginable. Common themes include ideas like the Alcubierre warp drive, Jack Sarfati's metamaterials, Godkutnov's superconductor experiments, Alzafon's atomic resonance NMR propulsion, gyroscopic and inertialist propulsion, like the Dean drive, I suppose, and of course, Woodward's mock effect thruster. Now, I've heard of maybe one of those, and I'm a self-professed know-it-all, so I, I mean, I've certainly heard of Jack Safardi, familiar with his work, but uh, the Alcubierre warp drive happens to coincide with the very first question that I decided this afternoon before I saw any of this that I was going to ask Tim. Tim, explain to us what a warp drive is. Um, well, uh, sorry, you, you've kind of gotten mixed up and turned around. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of warp drive, basically you're, you're basically just moving space along with you. You're creating a warp between two places in space, right? And so it's, you're talking about creating a manifold through space time, but that's not. No, I'm talking about the technology. I mean, I know about the wrinkled sheet, the Einstein stuff. That's everybody's been exposed to that, whether that meant anything or not, folding the, folding the piece of paper so you can cross from one spot to another. Yeah, no, no, no. Physically, as a technology, what constitutes a warp drive? What do you have to What do you have to do to make space do that? Well, there are a lot of different approaches that you can take to it, but that really, again wasn't really what I was going to present on tonight. I mean, if, if it's okay, you know, if it's okay, I'd love to kind of tell you what we've been up to and we can kind of go from there. Does that work? Oh, we can do all, oh, we can do all okay. of that. I just wanted to spread, just wanted to sprinkle in a question. Everybody, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not like the riddle of the Sphinx. I just want, I just want a simple explanation of that because when I see term terminology thrown around, uh, sometimes it's used incorrectly. Sometimes it's used inaccurately. It's, I just wonder. Since there's always a Star Trek element to things, like the Star Trek element to the Space Force, you know, the um, their version of a chevron indisput indisputably is almost identical to the uh, shape of the Starfleet emblem. And uh, the uh, when President Trump announced that they were really going to push the efforts to get a vaccine for the virus, um, he said, we're going at warp speed another star trek reference i don't find any of these surprisingly surprising since nasa uh decided to label their first space shuttle which never actually got to go much of anywhere uh enterprise <laughs> you know the link is solid it's been there a long time but so then there's warp drive which they made famous nobody else calls it that what is a warp drive A warp drive is basically modifying time space that you can exceed so you can exceed the speed of light. So you're creating a bubble of time space around yourself. There are a couple different ways to do it. Uh, you know, in the case of Albuquerque, he was stretching time space, and that's something that you can use gravity for. You might be able to use higher dimensional forces as well through string and brain theory. So there are a few different ways to do it. You know, again, it kind of gets into details that are difficult to explain, I guess. But uh, I guess the way to look at it would, no. would be warping time and space. No, that's a good, that's a good answer. 
I mean, that's that's what I that's what I was after. I just want to make sure that people don't think this is all hypothetical fantasy. You know, plus that's an awful that was an awful lot of tasty jargon in that one paragraph. I just wanted to go through there. So, well, all right, all right. I'll if you don't want if you have somewhere else you wanted to go, uh, I can ask you who um, Alzafon and Alcubierre specifically were later. Hello, yep. hello, hello. This Hi is there. Cynthia. I couldn't resist jumping in. <laughs> okay, go this, on. This conversation is fascinating to me, and I have to confess that I am, you know, not up to speed on all this, and many of our audience may not be. So I'd like to ask you, Tim, where do you think we should start? What is the best starting point? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are probably worth talking about tonight. The first one that I'm most excited about is the APEC conference. And I would love to, you know, kind of walk you through how that came about and what that means and hopefully what that means to the future of things. Then I also have three big maybes for 2021. And I think that these are going to be pretty profound paradigm shifts if they come to pass. And so, you know, I'd love to kind of walk you through those as well. Then I'd like to talk a little bit about UAPs, and I'm not an expert in this area, right? UAPs, UFOs, same same thing, different jargon. Um, but this is an area that I've kind of I've started to explore again. I actually wrote this off about ten years ago, and I've kind of come back to it with fresh eyes, I guess. And I'm so I'm looking at that, saying, well, where could this go, and what does this potentially mean? So those are some of them, you know, in in terms of the space force. Uh, I'm not really a believer in secret space forces, and I can talk about why I don't believe in the secret space force. There's a lot of stuff that I can tell you about the space force. I've interviewed uh, and I've talked with uh, the founders of it. And, uh, you know, again, I can kind of go into that in more detail as well. But, you know, if you're looking at the space force thinking, okay, this is going to be Star Trek warp drive type stuff. No, that's that's not what it's about. It's pretty surface level. It's more of a political motivation behind it, ah. I guess. And that, that's kind of what uh, makes it really interesting. So, uh, Tim, yeah, yeah. This, this is Ron again. No, that's yeah, that's exactly uh, what I wanted you to do was. Uh, and it does say on the banner that we're going to talk about the uh, Space Force and all its permutations. So uh, I just wondered where you wanted to go first. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think probably the best place to start is with the APEC conference. For me, that is the most exciting and I would say really the most unexpected. So let's do it. How many have there been? Or is this a new or is this a new thing? It's you know, it's kind of an ongoing conference. We've had six sessions so far. We have session number seven coming up. Um so this is it, it basically it's an entirely online Zoom-based conference. Each one of these bad boys lasts about six to six and a half hours, not by choice. It just ends up kind of dragging out that far, and that seems to be where it, where it wants to be in terms of time. And so we're doing these typically on like a Saturday afternoon. We start around noon Pacific time. And basically, this started out with a bunch of folks who were interested in gravity modification 
warp drives, Alcubierre, all of those kind of things that you've mentioned before. They, they were interested in those and they just wanted to chat. They were bored, right? We've all been trapped inside because of COVID, because of the pandemic. And, and so folks can't go to regular conferences, you know, so they, they, uh, they realized, hey, we can use Zoom for this, right? That's everyone's new skill for this year is being able to use Zoom. So we did the first one in early November and it was a bunch of guys working in their garages. They're building stuff in their garage, which for me was really exciting because back when I was doing American Anti-Gravity, that's what I was doing. I was building stuff in my garage. And so I said, well, this is awesome. But, you know, over the last couple of decades, we also have a collection of PhD physicists and real engineers and people who are doing real work in this area in terms of physics and design and things like that. So let's get some of these guys involved. So we did. So conference number one, again, was just garage engineering, right? These are the, these are the, the anti-gravity hackers. These are garage cowboys putting stuff How together. Fun. Yeah, it, it was it was tons of fun. And, you know, they didn't have any demonstrations that worked, but that's OK. That part of the thrill of it is, you know, is trying to figure out how we can recreate some of these experiments that we've read about online. Right now, one of those, uh, for instance, is uh, Eugene Pogklinoff's rotating superconductor. And then he had what's called the force beam experiment, where he took a superconductor and shocked it with a very high voltage, high amperage charge. So these fellows in their garage, they bought the superconductor, they set it up, they did a test. And instead of generating a gravity discharge, it actually just exploded, you know, but that's okay. That's okay. It's one of those things where you, you fail fast and move forward and learn how to do the experiment better next time. So that's kind of where it started six sessions ago. And then we got fellows like, uh, well, we got Paul Murad, who's an aerospace engineer. He used to, he used to be the section head of the STAFE conference, which was a university of, uh, uh, Albuquerque or University of New Mexico Albuquerque Nuclear Science Conference, and they had an emerging propulsion section. So we got him involved. We got John Brandenburg involved, and I know that he and Richard Hoagland go way back. He's done some work in this area as well. And we we just literally started getting more and more folks on board. Um, we've had presentations by David Alzafon who has kind of a do-it-yourself flying saucer reverse engineering system. Mark McCandlish talked about the ARV, the Alien Reproduction Vehicle. So as you can see, it's not just pure science. We've also mixed in a fair amount of ufology. And that, that wasn't really intentional. It just seems to be an interest area. And right now, it seems like UFOs and UAPs are kind of on everybody's mind. So, so that's... The, that's that's Can kind I of ask where you we're about at. one of them. Okay. Oh, sure, sure. Sorry, sorry. I just uh, you mentioned Mark McCandless, and he's the uh, illustrator that um, he sort of invented the idea of the exploded diagram. You know, like you, they they became famous in popular science, and then Scientific America starts Americans started to use them, and where you see something as if it's transparent because it's like nested line drawings. It's a really fascinating three-dimensional um, uh, nesting doll sort of sort of thing that he does amazingly well and nobody else does. But what did he talk about? 
Well, so again, he talked about the alien reproduction vehicle. So this was something that his source, Brad, and uh, I forgot Brad's last name, but it's it's well known if you want to look it up. His source, Brad, saw at an air show. Supposedly, he went to a hangar. I think it was at Wright Pat. Might be mistaken. Pitt. I think I think his last name is Pitt. <laughs> no one. Yeah. Um, it, it, Not that I, one. No, different one. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, so anyhow, they came, they, he saw this thing at an air show. It was a classified air show. Uh, and uh, the, the, the long and the short of it is he came back and they tried to reverse engineer this thing. So they came up with the exploded schematics and they've tried to apply various ideas to explaining how it would work. So we had him at the conference and he ran through everything. And again, for, for him, this is close to 20 years worth of, design and engineering and stuff like that. What makes these conferences interesting is that there, there are two things. It's been called the Woodstock of anti-gravity, and I, I firmly support that description. We have the greatest living innovators in this field together online discussing things for the first time ever, right? Um, we're not able to get them all at once, but we've got a pretty good collection of them. And they're working together and they're talking. So not only can you hear about these ideas, you can hear the discussion and the dialogue and you can hear people brainstorming in real time. So for me, that's really exciting. It's 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 literally kind of a best of breed. You know, this is the kind of stuff that you go to conferences for. It's it's not just what you hear during the conference. It's not just the presentation. It's also the discussion, right, where the experts in the field are talking about how to build things, how to make things better, what the scientific theories mean behind them. So, so you know, that's that's a big part of it. The other part, and I think that the audience would be really excited about this, is all of this material is online. We're Because it's in Zoom, we're going straight to YouTube. In fact, we're live streaming this. A fellow named Jeremy Reese, uh, he goes by the handle Alien Scientist on YouTube. He is live streaming to he has an audience of 110,000 subscribers. My audience in American Anti-Gravity is, is substantially smaller. It's only about 10,000 subscribers. But we are broadcasting to both of those. And this stuff is up there for posterity. And that's that's really our goal. Because one of the challenges that we faced is in this community, much like nuclear physicists and a lot of other kind of Cold War uh, professions, expert, you know, areas of expertise, I guess, um, we have a lot of older fellows in our group. We have a lot of older people. And, you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of the older folks won't necessarily be with us that much longer. So one of the things that we wanted to do was start to try and capture their ideas and their thoughts and their personality and their brilliance, right, for posterity, you know. Um, so that's that's kind of another part of it is we're getting the greatest minds together and we are trying to capture as much as we can of of their brilliance, I guess. Uh, and, and so that that's what makes me excited. Now, if your audience wants to learn about this, they can learn more at AmericanAntiGravity.com. Again, that's just www.AmericanAntiGravity.com. We are also working on a new website just for the conference. It's AltPropulsion.com. A-L-T-P-R-O-P, you know, U-L-S-I-O-N.com. So altpropulsion.com or americanantigravity.com. So I hope that I hope that is kind of a, a good overview of the conference to kind of get you started. Oh, cool. When is it exactly? 
Well, so what we're doing right now is about twice a month. Um, for for a while, we were doing them every week, and it just kind of knocked everybody out. As you might imagine, six hours at a stretch every Saturday, you know, we, we realized we can't keep this up. So right now, we're doing every two weeks. Okay. Our next one is February 13th, so it's coming up next Saturday. I love uh, the citizen uh, science that's happening here and the collaboration between the generations. It's exciting and that it's on, you know, Zoom and YouTube so that I, in my little room here, can attend. <laughs> I well, think that's know, fabulous. Kinthia, the, the thing that intrigues me is this. I, I'm 44 years old right now. And what I found was when I started American Anti-Gravity, I was in my, you know, mid-20s. And I, I got out of this. I went into corporate America. I did marketing, did executive management, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, I have, I have a family to support bills to pay just like everybody else. And I, I just wasn't able to maintain both. So what interested me was the fellows that were doing this garage tinkering, the way that they got me into this, the way that they, they kidnapped me, so to speak, was, was by telling me how much the material I'd done, the interviews and things like that had helped inspire them. And I was oh. like, well, wait a minute. That is that is interesting. Okay, so I guess I have a responsibility here, right? Now, I'm not sure how much I can follow through with that, but but it, it was it was interesting to have my work influence others who are younger than me, and then in turn that got me to thinking about the people who influenced my work, you know, because mm -hmm. with a lot of this material, and I think this goes for any kind of esoteric area, I think all of us have spent more than our share of time digging through the internet, digging through libraries, you know, mail order catalogs, trying to piece together information, you know. And when you get into stuff like anti-gravity or warp drives or any kind of emerging technology like that, if we're able to provide all of that or, or even just more of that than they would be able to get on their own, we can bootstrap them, right? So you take people who are building things, they don't have to start at square one, we can start them at square three and hopefully they'll achieve those breakthroughs. So that's that's kind of another goal, I guess. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, oops. I've got a car. Right? I've got a compliment for the website. I was going to tell you that, Tim. You're um, all three of them that I looked at. Something makes me think of Walter Winchell. I mean, I know Drudge thinks he was the new Walter Winchell because with the uh, typeface and everything else he used for the Drudge Report, which nobody looks at anymore. But the um, yours, the way it's set up, the way the articles run, and that picture of you, uh, you're the new Walter Winchell of the um, unusual. Well, Walter Winchell, hmm. I, you know, I, it's, it's been a long time. I have to go back and look. He's old school. That's the, uh, very old. old. He, he's even too old for me. He's just the icon, you know. But, Hello, America and all the ships at sea. You know, he had this whole pitch, <laughs> whole pitch that he did. I can't remember it, but it was uh, like I said, it was. I've only seen clips myself. But yes, you come across with that kind of polish, and a lot of those things are a little bit slip. A lot of presentations like that are a little slipshod, you know. And yours is yours is very tight. Well, well I, I appreciate I, you saying that. Uh, you know, I, I've. One of the things when I got back into this this year, I, I went through a lot of the old material and I, I tried to, like you say, I tried to polish it, tried to clean it up, tried to resurrect it. 
Um, some of the old stuff, you know, had to kind of throw away and start from scratch. So, you know, there, there was a lot of just kind of cleanup, I guess. <clears throat> um, and especially with American anti-gravity, because that's the one with like a 20 year, you know, history behind it. The, the APEC conference is newer. Um, again, we just started doing that in November. And so our challenge there is basically just kind of keeping up with what we have now. Um, you know, again, we're trying to do two guests and then basically a garage lab session for every two weeks. And so a, a big part of that is just keeping up with presentations and making sure everybody's organized and, you know, all that kind I like of fun the, stuff. I like the garage lab part. That's a, that's a nice touch. It makes, you're taking so, the same starting path as, um, Comic-Con. That's how Dear Comic-Con ones, we are at break. So you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our show tonight is called Inside and our honored guest is Tim Ventura and we will return. objective from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Very, yes. very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness for, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. 
Canada, and I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is Tim Ventura and our co-host is Ron Gibran. And I want to let you all know that this all was dumped into Ron's lap like half an hour before the show. So, you know, <laughs> I really appreciate him stepping in and I'm going to handle the breaks. I know Ron will do a great job and it was, it's not easy to step into Richard's shoes. Um, Actually, thank you, some, Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not easy. And, uh, you know, he's only no, going the from the phone, so I should have helped out at the very beginning. So, dear Ron and Tim, yeah. let's take it away. <laughs> yeah. No, I like I said, I wasn't going to do any apologies, but I didn't have time to do some things that you think you know already, but you don't. You know out there exactly how long a break is. Do you know what the up and down sound of the music is like? No, because you're not paying any attention to it unless it affects you directly. And I would normally run through that stuff just like I would find out how to pronounce everybody's name. But uh, that's the part I didn't get. So, yes, it does make it a little clunky. And thank you, Kintia. Uh I know you have other you always have other stuff to do. But, um, yeah, the, the <laughs> breaks the breaks are a small good. problem. And yeah, you Tim I broke is such out early. a gracious guest. You are such a gracious guest, Tim. And I'm oh, so well, excited yes. Thank you. hearing about this grassroots, you know, sharing of technology. It really makes me feel um, like humanity is on the edge of something new, like we're participating and co-creating in ways that we never have before. We all feel that way. Well, you know, and if I could jump in, I think one of the things that's that's important, and and one of the one of the friction points, right? I guess we could call it that. Is um, you know, when you look at science, mainstream science, you've got you know universities and the whole system in place, right, to educate and indoctrinate and kind of beat people into line, so to speak. And when you look at emerging science, you've always got this frontier, right? So it's frontier science. I think that's a common word for folks in this audience. And you need grassroots. You need cowboys. You need people who are going to break the rules and do things their own way. And you know what? They are going to fail. They're going to fail fast. That's, that's kind of what the, the mantra is. And they'll try it. It won't work. They'll get out of the way and they'll try something else. Now, an example of that in the traditional space industry is Elon Musk, right? They just blew up their, was it eighth or ninth starship prototype? 
you know, it doesn't even make it back down to the pad. It, it just crashes. And they say, that's fine. They scrap it and they build another one. So they do fail. They fail repeatedly, but they fail fast and then they move on to the next thing. So that's, you know, I, I think that's an approach. It's not the only approach, but when you're working in territory where you don't necessarily know what will happen, you don't necessarily know if your parameters are all right, then you need to be able to adjust things quickly and move forward, you know? And so this grassroots approach does help. Uh, it, it, it helps cross-pollinate in some ways. It brings in new ideas and insights. And again, it breaks the status quo. And that can be very useful for some types of development, you know? Ah, didn't expect you to stop. Oh, uh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, that's sorry okay. That. That's okay. Well, I haven't, yeah, I haven't talked with you, talked with you before. But uh, I would like to talk some more about the terminology or the um, technology itself. And I know that um, there are others out there, including our own Keith, that would like to um, have a piece of that, too. Uh, that's why I started off with a warp drive question. It wasn't to try and derail your train. I just wanted to um, verify to everybody that you could explain this stuff to to us if necessary, because uh, not everybody, as Kintia said, understands all of this stuff and we don't want to get them lost in the weeds but you did just have a conference about quantum gravity zero point energy and uaps and you said you wanted to talk about the uaps yeah this yeah. this this is an interesting year i i mean i don't think anyone could deny that right and um you know i remember at the end of 2020 just just last month people were saying well you know maybe we'll get back to normal maybe things will be a little bit more relaxed in 2021 but you know i in a weird way i think that it's going to get even stranger and uh, i think we're all seeing some of the the hallmarks of that approaching you know and so one of the again one of the things that i want to talk about was the three big maybes for 2021 these for me these are the ones that are really kind of just you know, those things that kind of scratch at your brain where you're just like, okay, I, it's it's there. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about it. I'm not sure what to think. So one of those is Mars Perseverance, right? The, the Mars Perseverance probe. Um, that's probably something that, that Richard has talked about a fair amount. Th that has a sensor package on it called Sherlock. So that lands, starts its mission on Mars this February. And what's interesting about Mars Perseverance is it is outfitted with a package to be able to look for life. Basically, it can detect chemical signatures remotely with this camera system, and then it can go in for a closer look and do and do tests. So NASA, you know, NASA likes to, they try and like to publicize things as much as they can. They've been trying to build up this little helicopter that's attached to it, right? That, that hopefully can take off and fly remotely in Mars the atmosphere. And I guess if they can make that work, it's an achievement of some kind, but it's really a toy. The interesting thing for me is there is a very real possibility that in the next couple of months, once Perseverance starts being able to do its tests, they'll have an announcement of life on Mars, past or present, right? Maybe oh, I say think they've been waiting for a chance to say that. That's yeah. the whole point of this. It's, see, this is, this is why I wondered why you said you didn't believe in a secret space program, and that's what I was going to jump, jump on you next about, because why don't you? It's pretty obvious that they know more than, uh, and by they, 
insert your favorite. I don't care if you say the the men in black, the Illuminati, the secret people that run the world from behind the curtains. It doesn't matter. You know, dark NASA, whatever you want to call, whoever you want to identify, they know already. And everybody knows that they know already. I mean, how many people do you know that don't think that there's stuff going on in secret? So why wouldn't there be a secret space program? There's evidence that goes back to the 50s of the military actually putting people in rockets and shooting them at things. You know, the the trouble that I have with the secret space program is the infrastructure required to build and maintain it, right? And, you know, I, I've, I've heard this quote. I can't remember who said it offhand, but they said uh, – actually, it was Ben Franklin – could said three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And what he meant by that is, it, it, you know, the more people who are involved in something that's secret, the better the chance that it will leak, right? But you so, don't have to keep it a secret. All you have to do is make it invisible. You do that by burying it in the noise. That's what they finally realized, that stuff is going to leak out. And if you do need more than three people, and this needs several mag magnitudes uh, more than that, then uh, it's fine because uh, there was an old CIA saying that uh, it's great working for the company because uh, if, if I want to tell somebody something over a couple beers, I can say anything I want. If it's classified, nobody will believe it. If it's not classified, no harm done. Well, I so, guess the but, question would be how you define secret space program. What, I mean, how, how would you envision an, that, I guess? An ongoing space program involving even live astronauts that goes back to the dawn, uh, the dawn of the idea, right at the end of World War II. The Nazis had a space program. I'm not saying they populated the solar system uh, just from out under my hat. Uh, they were building something called the A-9-10 which was a rocket that the ultimately uh, was the ancestor of the Saturn V at Pinamunda. And uh, it was solely for that. It was solely for use as a space program. And apparently uh, people like uh, Hitler wouldn't sign off on it because he didn't see a military purpose. He was getting pretty crazy toward the end of the world war with all that all that methadrine coursing through his system and all the um, soldiers marching towards him with other people's flags. Uh, and, uh, but they, he wouldn't sign off on spending any money on it. Well, it speaking pointless. of money, I want to jump in here because yeah. our sound engineer, Keith Morgan, who I'm sure will jump in on this show later on, uh, put in the chat box, Rumsfeld said that there were trillions of dollars missing from the military just before 911 took place. Where did the money go? Hmm. So that's a question there. And by the way, I have uploaded some images, some YouTubes from Keith. So at some convenient time, you can reload the page and you'll see new items there in Keith's section. Yeah. So back to you guys. Well, okay. Tim, oh, Tim, go ahead. Tim, just... go ahead. Let Tim. Well, you know, yeah. I, I, actually, I wanted to, I wanted to jump in. There were a couple. There were a couple other things that I think are interesting. I think these are are big maybes, right? So, so again, Mars Perseverance and and some kind of a maybe announcement that might happen. But you know, it, the the other one, which is more recent, is the Proxima Centauri candidate signal at Breakthrough Listen, and that intrigues me just because. 
uh, they haven't been able to rule it out yet, right? And that whole thing to me is a little questionable because it seems like they spend a lot of time looking for signals and then find creative ways to say that they're not real, right? So who's to say? But um, but it is interesting that they have a new candidate signal, and I think it was 982 megahertz, and they haven't been able to rule it out. And Lord only knows, give them enough time to process it, and maybe it will turn out to be some kind of alien communications. If that's the case, this comes from a star that's literally like, was it Proxima Centauri? It's like 40 light years away. This is, I believe they said it was 4.7, I think. Yeah. So it's on our doorstep, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so that's another interesting thing because then you get into issues like, okay, so we have a signal and it's close. Well, does that mean that the universe is populated with aliens? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, so the Proxima Centauri signal is number two. And then number three is this Director of National Intelligence Report. And you've probably heard about that, right? That's the one that they had the 180-day deadline on. And I think that we're right. already 20-something days into that. Right. So, Those never seem to pay off. You know, it, I I would like to disagree with you. I'm not sure if I can. I, the, the the military is very good at finding creative ways to get out of stuff like this. So, um, sure. So name one that had you know name one that has come to pass the way it was supposed to. If it was anything the least bit interesting, look at yeah. the Ken look at the stuff about the Kennedy assassination, which I'm personally not terribly interested in that's not one of my uh favorite searches but uh every time it's almost released and this is apparently innocuous personnel stuff uh it gets reclassified or moved or something and well and that's with, that's a good point uh, although the the in this case the thing that is working in its favor is the navy ua sighting uap sightings are very public and and they're you know everyone is asking a lot of questions and for, from what I've seen, there is no way that they can just dismiss that, right? In the past, it was swamp gas or hallucinogens or whatever. But like, for instance, in the case of the 2004 sighting, you had Fravor go up. He visually sighted this UAP. Uh, he knew something was going on. He was running low on fuel. So he came back in. So they retasked another vehicle that had a, a FLIR system, right? The forward looking for red, yes. it went up and then it got video. So you have, you have two different aircraft plus radar on the ships that are all picking this thing up. And now the video has been released. It was released by the Navy. So it seems like it's pretty damning evidence that they have something that they at least can't explain. And they have a lot of questions to answer now. So they, they well, might Well, here's my theory. Yeah. Oh, ah. That's almost it. That's almost one where you bump fists. You were about to say the same thing, except probably something different. Yeah, there, my theory about that is that there's no question in my mind that those things that were buzzing the planes are domestic. They're not from somewhere else. They're back engineered. I mean, they could be from something like the uh, like what Richard calls the breakaways, but they knew about them. They know about them. And in fact, those were released, as I remember, uh, illicitly earlier these are the same why these are the same clips and shots that we saw from was it the black vault that put them up and there was zero and, and the navy said nothing and then all of a sudden more recently they make a formal declaration that oh look at this stuff and we don't know what they are 
Well, I, if that sounds like a disclosure process to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Now, see, in in my case, I, I, I'm not particularly inclined to believe there are, but um, but I do believe it's something. Oh. And, and so if they come forward, my, my my thought is all they really need to say is it's it's intelligence, right? It's it's intelligently controlled. And I think everything else kind of falls into place behind that. So for for me again these these for me are the three big ones this year that I'm looking at saying if any one of these pans out right if we we could have a global paradigm shift and and I think that's really the big story you know is um people have been talking about UFOs they've been talking about secrecy and all of those kind of things for years right but but I, I think that we always kind of have this suspension of disbelief involved with it and so what happens if mainstream average guy on the street has to look at this and say we're not alone you know now maybe it's just some kind of exotic fungus on Mars that they took a photo of but that's I don't still... think funguses have saucers well, I, you know, I'm just using the least case example, right? If, you know, if Mars Perseverance comes back and says, we found some kind of a, you know, we found some kind of a mold on Mars, you know, that's still life. It's still life on another planet. And I think that there's still a paradigm shift. Um, it could go the other way. It could be that, you know, the maybe the director of national intelligence comes back and says, yes, we have something. We don't know what it is and we don't know how to stop it. Um, and you know, See, my problem is that that moss or um, lichen or mold is growing on buildings. There are ruins all over the place at, up there. And it's like, oh, look at this. There's a stain here. But the here that there's a stain on is a well-cut step, part of a flight of stairs. I mean, it's that ridiculous, you know, the way that some of it is as misdirection. And I would love to see some good fossils, and that's supposedly one of the things Perseverance is looking for. But, I mean, if you, you can look at the same picture. Two people can look at the same picture and see different things. If they condition you to think that it can only be microbial life or something like that, then a lot of minds will click into that. You're trying to help. You've been told there's mold there, so you're looking for mold. If you're, if you're not told there's buildings there, you won't look for buildings. I mean, some people will. I would. Maybe you would. Uh, but not everybody will. And so they won't see them. And they'll assume that anything that is, in fact, manufactured is just some uh, clever geological anomaly. And, well, you know, I don't know enough about geology and minerals to know why it looks like that. But it, it can't be artificial, so I just won't think about it. You know, that's all the paradigm shift takes is shifting that a little. Now, these things that buzz the planes, they can't be artificial drones like in the sense of like berserkers, you know, mindless well, AI driven the, the, things because they're playing games. The the, AIs the, don't play games. The, 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 prob the, problem with, the problem with the UAPs, though, is based on the speed and the performance and stuff like that, there's, there's nothing on Earth that could match that, right? So that's... That's kind of the issue. And so that's why I lean towards some kind of an alien intelligence, I guess. Um, now, uh, you could always make the case that maybe they reversed engineered something in a lab somewhere. But, you know, but but the, the problem is then it becomes just kind of rampant speculation. And it's like, OK, well, where's the evidence? Right. Where are the stories from people who built it and all that kind of stuff? So 
I, I don't know. I, I tend to lean more towards the ET hypothesis on that. Um, I, well, then why are they here? You know, I've given this a lot of thought. There are a lot of theories. Uh, there are a lot of theories. Michael what do you Masters. Think? Well, I, so I, I believe that they're you probably mean Marshall doing, Masters. Yeah. Marshall Masters, I believe. Yeah. And I think he talked about time travel. That's his hypothesis, right? I had, I think so. Yeah. Um, I burned out on Marshall, uh, I'm sorry to say, a while ago because he posts so many things. I can't handle people that post that much. But um, no, he's, yeah, I've heard him talk, I've heard him talk before and I, I think you're right. I think it's mostly time travel. But I remember him about the ninth planet arguments about Nibiru and um, what, what's the other name for it? And so I don't know. People do continue. Why do you, uh, you know, why do you like, why do you believe that? Well, so in fact, I'm here. I'm just pasting is that's the, that's the book. I'll just paste that into the chat right there. Um, so I, I think in, in terms of, in terms of UAPs, the performance characteristics are far beyond any kind of an experimental aircraft, right? I mean, you've got hypersonic stuff that everybody's military is playing with. Um, there, there, there are all sorts of rocket technologies out there, but you know, nothing can pull those kind of G's in a turn. Nothing can accelerate that fast. You would have to have some kind of inertial dampening on the inside of it or else you squish your pilots. So it's, it's not conventional earth-based technology and there are no indications that it's been developed on earth, you know? Well, now Again, wait a minute. Even when people asked Einstein about stuff like that, uh, speaking of warped, fields and so forth uh i mean he was a proponent of the uh you, you you've seen the analogy with falling elevator you know and that applies if you're inside a falling elevator you know the gravity is still the same if you're in a ship going three quarters of the speed of light and you're throwing a throwing a football back and forth in the cargo hold uh it's still going to be appropriate to whatever gravity you have set for the ship i mean these are it's a bubble it's a bubble yeah well, yeah, but if you do a lot, excuse me, Tim. Sure. Uh, are you familiar with that uh, a guy named uh, Salvador Paris or Paris? Hayes. Yeah, Hayes. Hayes. Yeah, and the the Navy Patton. And his electromagnetic propulsion system allows you to fly at thousands of miles an hour, not only through the air but under the water, and make ninety degree right angle turns because it negates inertia. Have you seen those patents? It says it I, uses microwave energy to actually pull this off yeah yeah no I'm, I'm familiar with the pace patents the, the question is whether they work that's and, and to my knowledge they haven't built and tested them to the point of demonstrating that they work yet so well, from what i understand the patent office was going to reject it until one of the naval superiors that he works for went in and said grant the patent we have a working prototype you didn't hear about that you know, I have heard that they've been building prototypes. I've even seen some photos of their prototypes, but it didn't. What Keith just uh, mentioned was it's a it's a memo and it's attached to the files. I mean, it's a formal memo and it's attached to the files of the, that they published about that on, again, I think the Black Vault. Sorry, not trying to give them all the plugs, but that's where the stuff sits. Yes, he's right. Keith's, Keith's right. They already yeah, talked about yeah. it. Yeah, and and so the with the photos that I'd seen the, of the demos and stuff, it looked very rudimentary, probably enough to demonstrate the effect, but not necessarily enough to you know prove that they can actually build a craft out of it. That that was 
you know, I, I think it's a good first step, right? I, I'm not knocking it at all. So the history that uh, has come out about people seeing in the 1950s what looked like a fuselage of a plane with no wings and hovering above a, uh, a highway to stop the traffic and a guy in a military uniform was looking for something and then he realized that these people were watching him and he got back in it and it took off at a tremendous rate. It's totally silent. Uh, none of that is stuff you've come across before? Well, I, it's not that I haven't come across it. It's the, the problem is um, it's impossible to know what the credibility factor is with that, right? With UFOs. That's, that's the problem. UFOs have gone beyond merely an observational phenomena. It's really become a religion, you know? And in, like in the 1980s, it became entirely subjective, right? Like when Whitley Stryber published Communion, um, it, you know, the abduction phenomena really started to take off. It, it, it completely left observational behind and it became kind of this intensely personal search for meaning and, and took on some religious overtones as well. And so the, the challenge becomes it's so wrapped up with culture and the imagination that it's difficult to look at that objectively. And that's what makes the Navy UAP sighting so interesting because they are documented more rigorously and there's just kind of a level of credibility that makes it impossible to ignore. Okay, Documented uh, pictures. We're about pictures two minutes through. out from the uh, break. But okay. um, I have a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you when we come back from the break, if that's okay. Sure. Right. Okay. Can you break, let me just say who we are. <laughs> we are the other side of midnight and co-hosting is... Ron Gerbron and Keith Morgan has joined us, and our honored guest is Tim Ventura. The show is called Inside. Don't worry, Tim. We're glad you're there. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.